I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brent Kermelitic and most of our viewers would be aware that Australia is home to thousands of decaying heritage homes, forgotten and neglected, many with a celebrated past just waiting to be restored and brought back to life. In the series Restoration Australia, which premiered on the ABC and ABC iView on September 26th, Professor Anthony Burke follows seven historic homes, all with incredible stories as their owners embark on heroic journeys to save them from ruin. But of course, with tight budgets and time constraints, what begins as a passion project for these homeowners often turns into a dreaded chore. But the stories are nonetheless remarkable and include amazing projects such as transforming an outdated and controversial mid-century relic into a 21st century family home in Beaumaris to an historic signalman's quarters, which once relayed messages about escape convicts in Hobart, all the way to a house in Pambula on the south coast of New South Wales, which served as a 19th century post office filled with hidden treasures. As mentioned, the host of Restoration Australia is Anthony Burke, a professor of architecture at the University of Technology, Sydney, a graduate of Columbia University in the US, Anthony is recognized internationally for his work in architectural design curation, commentary specializing in contemporary design theory at the intersection of technology, urbanism and practice. Previously, he was assistant professor in architecture at the University of California, Berkeley between 2002-2007, before returning to Australia. He has served as architectural judge for the London Design Week. Uh, 2014 and serves on numerous design excellence review panels and committees in design and architecture across in the area. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Professor Anthony Burke. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. <laughs> yes, it's a welcome to Freedom Day, I guess, or Freedom Week. Um, <laughs> yeah, we made it. Well, at least for now. <laughs> we have made it, haven't we? Um, yeah. look, so tell me, just before we start, how is the series coming coming along? I mean, what are you finding that people are talking about and what about what comes up first in their mind when it comes to you know home restoration? Well, we're talking home renovation in a way here, aren't we? Yeah, well, I mean, that's well, that's that's one of the most interesting parts of it, I think, is you know, we can compare Restoration Australia to other programs like it, where, and you know the ones I'm talking about here. Um, where everyone gets into a battlefield and you have contractors at war with the clients, the clients at war with the architects, the architects at war with the planners, and basically everyone at war with the government and so and the producers. <laughs> um, and we're not like that. So I think restoration is a little bit different. We certainly try to be different and you be the judge of whether we get there or not. Um, with the, you know, we, we do tell a good story. We do want the story to be a positive one at the end of it. We're not looking for unnecessary conflict. Um, but what we are looking for is a genuine wrestling match uh, in the clients themselves, in the homeowners themselves, as they make these big commitments, you know, about, uh, and very genuine, very authentic commitments, um, uh, very heartfelt about uh, making a contribution of some sort to Australian built culture. 
um, in a small way, you know, in small ways necessarily, but no, these are important things and they, they are very generous gestures. So I think if you start to understand the show from that point of view, then you're already on board with the homeowners. And then, you know, what normally happens is there's a lot of ambition at the beginning of a project, like any, you know, home uh, renovation. And because they've wanted to be authentic or they've got a different larger narrative within the project, you know, they're, they're inevitably uh, come up against, they inevitably come up against some kind of moment of choice. Now I can take the easy option. I can go the cheap way. I can do the expedient thing, which, we, which would be to pop down the hardware store and pick up a bunch of uh, gyprock and just cheap rock the whole thing. Or I can go to take the hard road, which is I said I wanted to be authentic. So now I've got to do plaster and lay plaster work. I've got to get the horse hair from somewhere. And I need some plaster who's only done this, you know, for their whole life, but there's only one of them in Australia. <laughs> I think that is, um, that's the point. And I, 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 li- I like seeing the, the homeowners come to that point and inevitably it comes, inevitably it comes and they find their way through it, you know, and that's what the shows, I think, uh, a lot of that's the DNA of the show, I think. And it's been, it's been really well received. And I look with COVID and everything, like we talked about a moment ago, I think people are looking at the built environment around them in, in a different way. You know, we've become perhaps overly familiar with our kitchen and our living room and our dining room because it's now our office and our school and all that, you know, so the walls around us, apart from closing in on us, perhaps, they're also, um, they're taking on a kind of a different significance for us. And the usual argument, if it's not the battle, the battle site that I just mentioned earlier, it's usually then the property price argument. Right. And I think, while that's a part of it, it's not really the DNA of the show, you know? I think rather it's like, okay, well, what is this changing nature of uh, our relationship to our built environment. And that includes history. That includes bigger stories. And we're craving that stuff, I think. So what, what you're t- telling me is you don't uh, you don't run down to Mitre 10 or Bunnings to pick up uh, bits and bobs. You don't uh, you don't walk, run around in fluoros screaming at people and uh, your uh, your ego doesn't actually run the show. Is that what you're saying to me? Uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty good executive summary, I think. <laughs> nice work, Branka. I, I agree. <laughs> I was going to say, um, how much, I mean, I, I'm trying to navigate the cultural cringe and, 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 sort of, and sort of the reality here. How much real honest goodness restoration can we do here in Australia? I mean, when I think of restoration, I think castles and, you know, Georgian mm-hmm. homes, and, you know, old, old mills that used to, you know, that, you know, that Richard III set up or something. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, loving it. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is, 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 is there? Do you have a lot of stock to choose from? You, you know, or is it, was it really hard to find homes to to restore or, or renovate or you know, basically bring back or or change? Or um, is it kind of easy? Mm. No, actually, there's more out there than you realise, um, and that's I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, you know, the kind of the 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 glamour restoration projects are, you know, the Dogano in Venice, where Tadao Ando, you know, picks up a kind of a 14th century um, warehouse and turns it into a fantastic museum or um, something like that, you know. Uh, this, is, this is not that. <laughs> That's my next show. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll do that next, you know. No, this is, but, yeah, so this is history with a small H in a way, you know, it's very local in the stories that it starts from, but, I don't, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think, again, it comes back to 
like the Pambula um, example, the house in Pambula, which was the post office, you know, at one point in time, it's a it's a tiny little house, really. It's not a very large structure, but it does have this these tentacles which stretch right into that part of this, the southern New South Wales coast around postal routes and shipping of materials from London or Boston to arrive in Australia, you know, flat packed. And so even with a very small door, a very small starting point, you end up with some, you can draw some very large networks very quickly. So there's one part of it, which I think, you know, as soon as you start scraping away, you realize that there are these connections and those bigger stories can be, can be found if you start looking hard enough, you know. The other side of it though, is um, we, we surprise ourselves. You know, we, we tend not to think of ourselves as a historic nation. You know, we are in terms of white settlement, 200 and something years old. And in terms of indigenous culture, many, many, many years more than that, but it's a sort of an unrecorded history. It's one really now trying to embrace and understand much, much better. So that's kind of a big onboarding project. We want that to be part of our thinking of who we are historically. So our, our historic imagination, I think, is probably much smaller than it needs to be. It, it should be a lot more um, ambitious because we do have uh, an interesting history to engage with. And sure, at the moment, it's a little bit too kind of um, white settler, but it's changing. And if we get into the sort of the period of modernism and so on, where we get lots of um, people coming in, you know, imports from all over the world that are then become very diverse, suddenly there's a richness. And, you know, it's like with these, it's like with all stories, this, the more you look, the more you find. And I think that's worth kind of keeping in mind. Now, one other story, there, there's a house we're doing in the next season, which is called the Duncan House, which is a Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin house. And of course, that gets us immediately back into the architectural main game of Frank Lloyd Wright and the Chicago School. So, you know, two, one and a half degrees of separation and we're, we're there. And you'd be surprised how often that happens. You touch on sustainability there, don't you? Because all of this is adaptive reuse. I mean, the most sustainable mm. building is the one that you're standing in at the moment. Yeah. You're not really building anything new. And the reason I bring this up, and I'm just of this now because we we run the sustainability awards have done so for 15 years and there's one thing that always always blows my mind is that why don't you redo what you have rather than rebuild new stuff you know i know sometimes you have to but i think mm -hmm. a lot less of this readaptive or adaptive reuse or readaptive reuse or however you want to call it mm. do you Think that if we did more of what what your what your show, you know, espouses, do you think that that would be good for sustainability? Oh, look, the short answer is only absolutely. You know, um, I, the last time I did a quick check, um, if you are doing an adaptive reuse project, you're 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 automatically saving something like thirty percent on your carbon footprint uh, as opposed to a new build. So that's just without even that's just from the get go. So let's just take that as a very general, general number, very generic kind of a calculation and start there. And I think we're on a savings from that point on. Um, you know, you probably, I'm sure you've heard the other stat that something like 80% um, of the built environment around that will be around us in 2050 is already existing. Yeah. So we're working with this enormous sort of, if you think of it in sustainability terms, this enormous carbon sink, which, you know, we'd be foolish to just demo and rebuild, you know, I think it's it's in terms of sustainability, it is 
um, taking on that question with a new energy, perhaps. Now, this is not to say it's not the most important question at the moment, because um, it is, but it's how many ways can we cut this cloth? How many different ways can we look at that sustainability question and as legitimate ways to understand um, the environmental, the technical, and then the social cultural dimensions to the sustainability agenda. So I think the show restor or restoration adaptive reuse in general, you know, really attaches itself to both of those last two very, very, that's its home ground, that's cultural and social. Um, you know, it does have that side to it, but then you think about the material dimensions of it and yeah, we're already at least 30% ahead. And I think that's worth acknowledging. And what I'm seeing, and actually you saw this in the Pritzker Prize winners from last year, um, Lakatan and Vassal, right? their whole practice is about adaptive reuse for social housing on the outskirts of Paris. Not the most delightful architecture to look at. <laughs> if I can be right. Yeah, it's not. Um, but they have built an amazing practice out of seeing that as the most contemporary design practice that they could do. You know, they, they don't believe in demolishing anything. You know, they think, I think they've said point blank that de demolition is evil or something to that effect. So there's a, almost a morality to it for them. Uh, and I kind of, I sympathise a lot with that point of view. I do think if we are not clever enough as architects and designers to imagine the next thing that incorporates the existing thing, you know, if we can't adaptively upgrade, if we can't start with something, a plate which is half full and take it somewhere better, if we can only start from the blank slate that modernism wants us to imagine, then we're not much of a bunch of designers, are we? We're really not doing our job. It's all, it also, I mean, on, on a pure aesthetic level, it, it looks nicer when you restored something that, you know, has been built. And it was built, let's say, I don't know, 50, 100, 150, 200 years ago, it doesn't matter. I mean, some of those buildings mm. are beautiful. Um, Okay, we have mod cons and stuff, and but I, I don't think we've improved on aesthetics. I think I think we may have improved over the years on functionality, but certainly not, not on aesthetics. Um, certainly mm. not some parts of, of Western Sydney, I've got to say. Um, well, know? I mean, well, that's that's the point, isn't it? I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. When when I take people on walking tours and stuff around architecture, the general, the person, the interested person in the public. Who's, who, who is thinking about the built environment around them, but not an architect or a designer. They're looking at the current kind of uh, dross that's been pumped out through um, the development and, the, and the, the, the way our suburbs have changed around us. And they are not NIMBYs. They are not sort of looking at that going, not in my backyard, thanks. You know, they're saying the way that we're doing this is just terrible. You know, there's no quality to any of this. And we are living in this. this is, and I, I kind of feel at that point we can really commit as a design community to doing a lot better in that space. And I think part of it is if we take the adaptive reuse, I like the line that adaptive reuse is the most contemporary form of design at the moment. You know, there is a resurgence of interest in it. The technologies of adaptive reuse are becoming more and more updated and sophisticated. So they are right up there with contemporary, the technology of building, if you like, uh, in that space that uh, in a way that it hasn't been before. But more than that, the contemporary design agenda has moved in that direction. So this is the question of the day. How do we acknowledge 200 years of storytelling in the fabric of the walls around us and then find the next story to tell on top of that?
much more than just a, a rest, uh, restoration aficionado. I, I wanted to say that word on a podcast. It's taken me nine <laughs> to do that. Um, you are, Congratulations. I'm glad I was here to hear it. <laughs> you've done some really interesting things. Um, in fact, in 2010, you co-edited an article called Post-Traumatic Urbanism. Which, given our current situation or what we've gone through the past twenty-one months, uh, may well—you may well have, you know, been a, a bit of an Nostradamus. So, can you tell me a little bit more about that and and, and, and what that is, what, what what it was about? Yeah, sure. No, that's that was a moment in time where I was working with two colleagues, uh, both at UTS at the time, um, Adrian LaHood, Dr. Adrian LaHood, and Dr. Charles Rice, and the three of us got together to do this edited. Uh, book, an AD, um, called Post-Traumatic Urbanism. And the three of us had an, a common interest in the kind of urban conversations that were happening at the time. But we had very different departure points for that conversation. My particular version was coming from the ethics of, of the smart cities and AI and computational systems. Adrian was very much invested in the use of public space uh, and after things like the Arab Spring, and Tahir Square and how different types of urban and civic infrastructure or public domain was being used in new ways given the current political circumstances that were around. And the post-traumatic part is, you know, these happen, these kinds of protests and things happen after some kind of major upheaval of some sort, some traumatic kind of social event. Um, that might be written on an environmental scale or it might be written on a political or a social scale but certainly something, and we think of Beirut right now, after the explosion, what is it doing now after that trauma of that gas expl that explosion and, and it's, the economy's collapsed and it's in real strife? So there is a kind of a response uh, in the urbanism and therefore the civic nature of that community that is a part and parcel of that trauma and its sort of recovery after that. So that was that was sort of the that was the edited collection. It was as an, as an AD, they were sort of short articles. My my particular take on all of that was my interest in coming from the technology side, and I was looking at the early introductions of a lot of computational systems that we now think of as smart cities or smart sensors and those kinds of things. Uh, and looking deeper into, I'd, I'd done a book on networks when I was at Berkeley. And so I got into the kind of the abstract logics of information flow, especially around urbanism and architecture, sometimes incredibly optimistic and opportunistic about collaboration and that sort of stuff. But the other side of that coin, which is this one that we, we don't hear enough of in the urban conversation, is about once we start employing algorithms to determine things like, um, I don't know, planning, planning regimes or restrictions, or we start using algorithms to look at postcodes and incomes and demographics, we start to sort of actually design our neighbourhoods through these very abstract processes. And they are not transparent. They are not um, upfront and they are often unethical. And um, in that sense, they do tend to collapse and narrow the design opportunity and space and way of thinking about our urban futures rather than expand it into the kind of conversation that that we hear being run out for very real and very interesting and genuine reasons. Like everyone wants an active streetscape. Everyone wants a pedestrianised downtown and, you know, the city of Sydney here have done a great job of trying to bring life back to the streets of Sydney and pedestrianising George Street and all that. But underneath the, the, these other parts of that logic, that technology side, which is all the accounting and the budgeting and all of the, you know, the, the, red, the legislation and so on, 
there is also uh, potential, and in some cases, the real um, case is um, there is potential for some, you know, really unethical kinds of um, exclusions that happen. You're not wealthy enough to be here. You don't have the income that's going to get you here. This is a place that's not designed for that demographic, either elderly or kids or someone that has to travel 45 minutes to get there, you know. So claims that are made around urban developments actually around those kinds of statistics can be used for um, the wrong in the wrong ways, you know. I think of um, Google in Toronto and there was a moment where their Sidewalk Labs project there was it was um, eventually it didn't go ahead, and the reason it didn't go ahead was because the um, the technical group around it that were advising or the, the the local council, as I understand it, were very concerned about the transparency of the kind of spatial algorithms that were being used to track people's movements and behaviours. And if you're Google, uh, that looks great from a commercial point of view. Uh, if I know what you're going to buy next, if I can predict that, that's an excellent way to lease a piece of real estate. But if I'm the person walking around and I'm giving out that information just by being there, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And I think those kinds of ethical issues are, they're being discussed at that, at that time that in 2010, they were on the table, but only just, and I think there's a, a better conversation going on with that now, but these issues remain, you know, I think they're really important to think about. That's interesting. You know, we, we've, had, we've heard a lot about algorithms this week, you know, in terms of, you know, with Facebook and whatnot, and you, know, mm. you all know the the, the use of um, technology for, dare I say, less than altruistic uh, purposes by the Chinese government, um, which which brings me to the next point. You've done a whole heap of work on that intersectional technology and architecture, as you've mentioned, and the built environment. Now, you've mentioned an example of, was it Toronto, you said, was it? Um, yeah, Toronto, yeah. Well, is this something that most architects or people working in the built environment are aware of? Is this something that we should be more aware of or literate about? Um, and is, is, there, is there any relationship with what's happened with the pandemic? Because, as you know, now we're walking around. Every time I, I've got to go pick up a carton of beer, I've got to you know, <laughs> go to Dan Murphy's and I've got to click into my phone and, you know, a QR code and go through the service New South Wales app and yada, 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 mm -hmm. which is fine. Um, but there, there is that, I mean, that's obviously very rudimentary what you were talking about. But still, I mean, you're tracking people wherever they go, I mean, is that going to become the norm? Is this something that we should all know about? And how does that actually affect design? I mean, you know, mm. there is... Why is this an architect's question? Yeah. Well, so how, mm. so how, do, how is all this going to work? The, 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 um, we're already there. If from, Look, the way I look at it, and it's probably a little bit nihilistic to say it this way, but I think if you, if you believe you have any privacy left in those terms anymore, you're sadly mistaken. Um, every camera on a street corner in, a, in any city in, in Australia is looking at a crowd. Facial recognition can pick you out of that crowd and can link you to your postcode or your um, driver's license or your credit card or whatever, your insurance. Actually, there's a great book called Weapons of Math Destruction uh, written, I can't remember who the author was now, I apologize, but it was an excellent read and it really tracked, and this is written, the author is American, talking about American society, but tracked how numbers and how our statistical double ganger 
really is the the what how much effect it has on our lives from the point of view of your postcode determining what uh, colleges uh, advertise to you uh, as a potential future college student and offer pathways for you to go to that particular college or university. So your postcode determines that. So your world becomes shaped by the implications of your income associated with postcode and so on. Then you buy a house and your credit check, you know, happens and your ability to borrow money is based on your credit history, which is linked to your credit card, which has shown up in your spending patterns, which now is basically the same as waving a phone over a cash register. So all of this stuff does add up, you know, and it, and it means that we do already have a very, um, uh, we, we, we have lost a lot of that, what we would imagine to be privacy um, has already been given away. Um, and, for, you know, the trade-off has happened in most cases. We trade uh, those kinds of things for convenience or for, um, uh, for access and all sorts of things. So it's not an easy question. I don't want to be a kind of a, it's black and white, you know, I, you know, we can all say it's bad, bad, bad. But there are implications and um, we need to be aware of that. So the second part of your question then is, why is this a designer's problem? Why is this an architect's problem? And are we as architects thinking about these types of things? Um, I think to a, to a small degree, yes, but not to the, we don't have the literacy in this space that perhaps we should have. Um, I think it's one thing to understand that Facebook is an echo chamber or to understand that, you know, social media tends to work to um, continue to reflect itself. Uh, and, you know, it's like for like, it's a mirror of you. So you sort of, your world shrinks, it doesn't grow when you engage with those sorts of conversations. And that's the opposite of the urban version of that, which is the, you know, the, the Martin Place or the civic space where we would go to meet a stranger in the classic, you know, this, the city is a place where I go to meet a stranger. I love that phrase. And so if you do that, on, you don't really do that on Facebook. You know, you don't go to Facebook to meet a stranger. You go there to meet someone who you kind of feel comfortable knowing already. And they are suggested to you because they're a bit like you. So I think in that sense, there is something that we need to sort of, as architects and designers and urban planners and so on, we need to be kind of uh, taking a side which promotes that um, diverse, genuine diversity uh, and doesn't make our city spaces the same as the built version of that echo chamber of Facebook. You know, we want those city spaces to genuinely be open, to genuinely encourage an authentic diversity. And that's a lot harder to do than it sounds. You know, it's not just throwing the gates open and saying, come on in. It has everything to do with how do you get there? Are you on a train line? Are you driving a car? Can you afford the parking? Do you have a car in the first place? Dot, 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 you know? Um, so those are the kinds of things. I mean, I, an example I used to use, I used to, I used to, actually, I, was in, I used to get invited to um, uh, conferences and so on in, uh, around Asia on smart cities for a while until I got to the point where I just got so sick of walking around the, the exhibition halls, looking at all the new tech that was on the stands. And every time I'd walk past something, my face would get scanned and some little profile would pop up. And there I was with a turban on my head or a beard or, or some sort of, sort of racial kind of profile. And I'm like, how the hell? You know, so I can see myself getting absorbed just by walking around the exhibition hall. So at that point, I started raising these issues more vocally in those conferences and consequently didn't get asked back very much. So that happened. <laughs> the one example I was going to say was, uh, it's, and it's an interesting dilemma, you know, and these things are all dilemmas in the truest sense of that. You know, there, are, there is always going to be a winner and a loser in whatever outcome there is. It's not a clean cut kind of thing. Uh, but let's just say you're really worried about the, um, the GDP of a city 
Um, you are worried about the economy. Economy is good for people. People need jobs. People need to pay the rent. Yeah, we can all agree with that, you know. Uh, then something happens, a downturn happens. Um, so how do you start to fiddle around with the urban algorithms to prioritise your most productive workers? Who would be your most productive workers in that context? It's probably that bunch of white-collar workers on the big salaries who are running the financial system or maybe in the courts or something like that. So suddenly the traffic lights start going green a lot quicker to get in from the suburbs where those people live rather than the other way around. So that sounds like a small example, but you can imagine how how devastating that could be if it was used in the wrong way. I'm not suggesting anyone's doing that, but I am saying it's kind of there, you know, and that kind of thing can very easily emerge. And I think we've seen enough Black Mirror episodes to, <laughs> to understand that, you know. Let's talk about the oldie world architecture. <laughs> Going back in the old days. So you're, as Professor of Architecture and Course Director for the Master of Architecture in um, the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building at the at UTS in Sydney. What is one thing, or maybe not just one thing, but what is the main thing that you see is that is new developing your students when it, uh, in terms of what do you think they need need to improve on? I mean, obviously, technology is not something that they're uh, unaware about, nor its nor its overlap, nor its influence into in, into the built environment. Um, but is there something that perhaps they need to know more of in, in terms of their development? That's an excellent question to ask. You've got me thinking about a hundred ways to answer that. Um, We've got all afternoon, no worries. <laughs> Look, I think, I think this particular generation of students have have an enormously well, unique, they have a very different context in which they are operating to the, to the version when I was at uni, you know? The, literally the existential crisis around them, whether it's climate change or whether it's pandemics or whatever, you know, these are super huge problems that no architect is gonna solve through one building, you know, or even a, a building standard, you know? Like this is, these are bigger problems. So I think as an architecture student, to remain optimistic about the potential of design to change people's lives in small ways is something we have to keep reminding ourselves about. Like we can, as designers, as architects, um, improve people's lives on a day-to-day kind of level. Um, we can also have a major um, role to play in those much larger questions, but at that point, they are not questions which architects can solve on their own. So we really do have to understand our role in the larger conversation and I think we as a discipline in architecture, I mean, we've been quite comfortable with a sort of a degree of autonomy in the way that we think about discipline. You know, we are designers and we come up with great ideas about the future. We've always worked with the trades and with planners and science and so on, but perhaps not to the degree that we need to now to really get underneath the skin of these bigger issues that we're trying to find our way through as a, you know, as a culture. So I think, if anything, students have recognised this. The problem, that, the thing that I would like them to have more of is to find, the, find more of the optimism, find more of the sources of optimism to drive them to keep going with that, that mission. They are you know, very aware of what is happening around them, far more than I was as a student. So they are responding to all this stuff 24-7, you know, and that barrage can be mind-numbing. I mean, particularly thinking about my students right now who have been you know, learning from home, doing studios online and stuff. It's 
it's it's not been easy on anyone, you know, and particularly the students. So I have an enormous amount of empathy for what they're going through. On the other hand, they are they are passionate, uh, as I think all students are and should be, you know, about their role in solving these problems and these issues. So the issue is how do we um, give them the tools to get there but when the problems are very different sorts of things, you know. So, you know, you asked me what, what should we be teaching them, what should they learn more of? I think it's those kinds of um, external negotiation skills, um, collaborative tools beyond the discipline itself. A confidence of what we offer as a discipline uh, is the starting point for that. You know, you don't go into a collaboration without knowing what you are able to contribute. But recognising where that ends and where that begins is a very interesting skill that not a lot of people have. And architects are particularly good at the overreach. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to think we can, we can solve a lot of things that perhaps would be best left to a scientist or perhaps to a sort of an anthropologist, perhaps, you know. So we tend to, and that's our optimism and that's our kind of, um, that's our vision of the future. And that's, you know, that's why we got into this game perhaps in the first place. So that's one part of it. The, of course, the, because all this is going on around them at the big end of town, the thing that I perhaps worry about is that we're losing touch with the material reality of the built world in an education context. And it's harder and harder to, um, to, to help students learn about things like, you know, um, how do you work with timber on a building site? Or how does a concrete pour affect the, um, the foundations and the foundations are a part of the cost of the building? And the kinds of things which sound, you know, you know awfully pragmatic at one level, but which are the... Um, <laughs> excuse the pun, but they are the foundations upon which the rest of the discipline is built. So to, to get students to not just see that in a book or not to see that in an Instagram feed, but to really materially get it, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of putting your hands on it. And that sounds super old fashioned, I realise. But I feel like that is something that we need to try and find new ways to really get in front of the students and that they need to onboard um, a lot more than perhaps they are at the moment. And that's circumstances um, as much as anything. I think their interests have gone in other directions to begin the town. Uh, and the way higher ed is working is to, you know, to embrace, you know, online learning and these things, which on some instances is great, but there is this other side, which I fear will get left behind. And I think that's really important in architecture. You're also a historian, aren't you? I'd say I'm, um, yeah. Well, uh, recently, um, recently, yes. <laughs> recently? Yeah, no, I've, I've always had an interest. I've always had an interest in the history of architecture, of course. Uh, but the getting involved with the show has really, you know, catapulted me back into that space in a really serious way. And, and I'm very excited about that, actually. Um, as I was talking about before, my, my work when I was at Berkeley as a, as a junior academic was more in the technology space. Mm -hmm. uh, and those implications and things. But I really got to a point where I started to feel like the wheels were spinning and that was had reached a natural end point. So in that, for me, the show came along at just the right moment in time. I think I was probably getting, I, was, I would dare to say I was probably losing the faith a bit. You know, like, what can architecture do? I don't know if it can really do anything. Kind of got to that point, you know. So to get reinvolved with the history and the cultural conversation around architecture and how important it is to um, all of us, not just our disciplinary conversation. That's got me really motivated again and very, I would say, inspired again around my own discipline. And I think we need those renewal, refresh moments from time to time. So, so here we are. <laughs> wow, an almost jaded architect. Um, what, what can, 
<laughs> I say that nicely. Oh, look, look, seriously, what can modern architects learn from history? I mean, you know, you said you said something that you know you thought that architects, you know, you come to a realization that maybe you guys can't fix everything. Okay, fair enough, but you can learn from from history from following well, the face of them, the mistakes of others, if nothing else. But um, there are there we have a, a human history that the, the written history that goes back a long time. What do arc or can architects learn in terms of how they apply how they apply their their skills today? Good question, Branko. Another complex one. The- yeah, it's, it's, it's also one that unfortunately we need a whole show to actually talk about, but. You know, in, not, not, not to call it the elevator response, but certainly, you know, uh, in, in terms of a fairly brief-ish response, mm. um, you know, what would be one thing then that, that an architect would mm. the, the way I look at that is um, I would say, I think we're in a moment of transition right now from a conversation around value to a conversation about values. And you know what I'm talking about here, from dollar signs to values, from money to ethics or, and, and the world that swims around in that larger sort of social cultural milieu. And I think then when we look at history, what we look at and what we learn from history um, are the way that values have changed over time. But more importantly, how do we see where certain values have materialised spatially around us? And when they are positive, how do we drag them forward with us into the future? How do we find ways to keep building on them to promote the good stuff, um, the assessment that we make about what we've done in the past? So this isn't, I mean, I think you're right. There is the, there are all the, the things that have happened in the past that we think, well, that didn't work or that was dreadful or let's, let's learn from that mistake. But equally, there are all the great things that we've done in the past and some things have been quite extraordinary. And in particular, certain ways of, of, of living um, of having social relations and um, of spatializing those relations through architecture, sometimes they've been very, very positive. And I think um, those are the things we look for in history. They're the things I'm interested in. You know, uh, They're the things that I think then we as contemporary designers and architects, we take those things and we then we, we, we make them our own for our own time. So we can bring them forward with us. And that's, that's how I think of that question. And that's why I think history is really important. I don't, I don't feel nostalgic for the past, but I do feel like there are things, there are lessons there. No, that's too didactic. There are, there are approaches there which are not just relevant for today. They are important for today. You know, they are things we need to think about again and ways of thinking we need to touch on again. Getting back to the show then, um, I've heard certain architects call programs such as yours, um, or this style of program rather, um, archiporn. Um, I'm shocked. I mean, that is not my term, by the way. So, <laughs> please, <laughs> that was that was actually a very well known Sydney architect who, who shall remain nameless. Who, who, who that name. But anyway, what do you say about that? Is I mean, I think what he was trying to get at is, is there's nothing wrong I mean certainly nothing wrong with, with your show and there's nothing wrong with shows like that at all but I think does it possibly set up um, you know expectations that are unreal um, and, and I, I've got to say having built my own home I can tell you here and now 
I would not do that if you paid me a million dollars. I'm quite serious. You could, you could say, here's a million bucks, go build, build me a house. I say, mate, keep your money. I, I, I want my sanity. So is, is there a... And, I, and I've seen things like grand designs as well, as you know, you know, like, you know, what's his name? Gavin McLeod, isn't it? The, the host? Kevin McLeod. Yeah. Kevin, yeah. Kevin McLeod, sorry. Um, you know, you look at some of the projects people take on, you go, oh, my God, what are you doing? <laughs> is, there, is there a danger that, that, that people watch a show such as yours and say, hey, I can do that? <laughs> Yeah, there is. There is a real danger. And look, and some of the some of the houses that we've been dealing with in this series um, are um, uh, are really being done by the homeowners who are um, have maybe a relationship to trades, the trades, um, but are really doing a lot of the work themselves, for better or for worse, you know. But they're having a crack. Um, so yeah, there is that danger that you know the um, the viewer out there is going to watch that and go, wow, if um, if that guy can pick up a drill, then so can I, and I'm just going to start you know getting stuck into the walls. Why not? I would urge caution <laughs> at that point. I would put my uh, my litigious hat on and say, speak to an expert. You know, uh, this is the point in which you need your architect to advise you. Please go and speak to him or her. You know, like have that conversation. I do think, and the whole Aki Porn thing, there's a fine line there. I totally understand what that's about. And I do think that's true to a very large degree. And I think of the um, ridiculously expensive homes that we often see on these kinds of shows, mine, you know, our show, Restoration Australia included. Um, and, you know, they are, to call them aspirational is kind, you know, to call them out of reach of mere mortals is probably another way of putting it. Uh, so I do think that's uh, that's that's the archiporn side. That's the aspiration to things that we will probably never in our own personal lives. As a professor, I will never be able to afford that, you know. But I think there are, there is, again, there is instruction in those. What I see in our show is that, um, we have a, a whole range of budgets and homeowners uh, and more and more we're trying more and more to get a more diverse uh, group of homeowners and house types involved. So you might have seen, um, you mentioned Pambula as the, um, uh, one of the, the first episode from this season, season four. Um, it was a very small budget um, and Deb and Mike were absolutely brilliant at throwing themselves into that project, you know, heart and soul. And I think what inspired me the most was that they, they knew when to call in the experts, but they also knew that they were going to give a lot of the elbow grease themselves to that project. And they didn't see it as a contest of wills or a battle. They saw it as a journey they wanted to go on. They wanted to be part of that. And it's a bit, it's a bit sort of corny to talk about journeys these days, but certainly that process, they threw themselves into that process. And, you know, poor Mike was out there standing under the, the, uh, the steel awning of his shed with a blowtorch and a paint scraper, scraping the paint off the weatherboards for days on end, you know, and it's thankless, that kind of work. But at the end of it, you know, I think he says even in the episodes, you know, but I did this and I, I wanted to do this. And that's, I mean, if I go back to history, that's a little bit of the kind of the uh, arts and crafts attitude to architecture. You know, you, you recognise uh, the labour of someone that's gone into uh, a, a design, a construction, a building or a, or a piece of ceramic or a, or a painting. And you value that labour, you know, and you try and find ways to express that, not in the decorative sense, but in the sense of um, respecting the authenticity and authority of the, of the labourer. And I think to that degree, I'm, I'm all for that. I think we should be not be scared about going into these um, relationships with our built environment around us. And of course, I'm going to be the first one to acknowledge that 
our home is generally the biggest uh, expense we will have in our lives. And so you're not going to go around with a sledgehammer knocking down walls willy-nilly. You know, you do want to take it seriously, but uh, not see that journey as a um, as somehow always fraught or as something which is out of reach. I think actually there's much more that we can get involved with um, if we want to. And I would encourage people to want to. For me, the whole reason I'm doing the show, uh, that I wanted to do the show in the first place, was because I, I feel strongly about advocating for the, the value of good design uh, in, in architecture, you know, in Australia. And I want people to feel like they have access to that, that they can be a part of that. So I feel like this show, if it does, if it uh, opens a small door on a much larger conversation for a viewer on a Sunday night sitting on the couch with a glass of wine uh, and they think a little differently about the room they're sitting in or the house that they exist in or they have, you know, a slightly different ambition because of that, then I think that's good. That's what the show, that's what I want the show to do. I want that conversation to emerge for every person in that way at whatever level. But that's, that's why I do it. Does it also bring out a bit of the Julius Caesar in people? I think, you know, I came, I saw, I conquered sort of thing, you know, I crossed that Rubicon and here I am. I mean, there is there is that, isn't there? I mean, you know, in these, and I've noticed that in other shows, or we, we may have mentioned earlier, there is a sort of, um, there's a competitiveness. Hmm. There's very much, um, okay, well, there's, there's a financial, you know, hmm. goal at the end of the end of, end of into the show so obviously but there is it kind of with what you said it, it kind of also plums the the depths of the human psyche doesn't it because mm. I mean, since we kind of came out of that you know neolithic cave we thought you know we can we can fix this cave up you know we can we can make this cave look schmick i mean is, is, is there a bit of that as well oh uh, you know the Dealing with something as as important to one as one's home is is first and foremost an emotional uh, decision, conversation, thought process, reaction. You know, it's all about that kind of human element uh, before it is all those rationalizations that we make to justify our emotional decisions. You know, like oh yeah, well I really want to renovate the house because I feel like the kids are getting older and they want bigger bedrooms. I don't know. Um, and then you rationalize that and say, oh, yeah, well, if we spend an extra couple hundred thousand dollars on the place and extend, that's going to increase the property value. So let's do it, honey, you know. So <laughs> but first and foremost, it's I think it's a very emotional and um, uh, you know, it's a very emotional thing. Um, and that's I think that's a very undervalued and underrecognized part of our relationship to the built environment, you know, and and the other show, well, I don't want to pick on the other shows, but I mean, that conversation which we have <laughs> well that conversation that we have in the press a lot which you know which is and you know i've had a couple of conversations with people since the show's aired about property prices and um and all of that stuff but i i just think they're um they they begin and end with the idea of combat and winning or losing like you said the julius caesar thing you know one has to find determine the battle and then be triumphant in the battle and I think there are other ways that we can look at this. And I do genuinely believe that, um, you know, if you, uh, if you have the right people around you and the right mind, fr uh, you know, uh, frame of mind, uh, actually, it can be a real pleasure, you know, even just renovating in a small way your own home. It's a sense of, you know, of creation and a sense of I did this and a sense of success, perhaps, you know. Um, but, and we, you know, we, we've become 
very dependent on the skills of others and the trades that we need to bring in for the for, for certain jobs absolutely but perhaps not for everything you know we can be involved and i think we should be okay so speaking of emotions and, and, and tv industry what have the reviews been like so far <laughs> Uh, well, so far, the, the response has been great. Um, I have to be honest, I'm not reading a lot of social media, so I'm not checking, I'm not checking for the trolls. <laughs> but it's been, well, the feedback I've had has been very positive. Uh, the ratings has been, have been really good too. So I think that's uh, all, all good signs that people are interested and they're tuning in. Um, so, yeah, and there will be another season. Season five is, we're shooting that right now. So we'll at least have this season plus next year. And then from then on, we'll see. We'll see where we, we end up uh, and how it's all settling. But so far, so good. Actually, with, um, with two of the episodes so far, we've had, well, the one I'm thinking of in particular was the one that aired the other day uh, in Milton, uh, down on the um, south coast of New South Wales. Yeah, they, um, Scott and Kate, the homeowners there, had, had said during the show they wanted to open up their property and give back in some way. That was their reason for doing this after their daughter was involved in a car accident. And you know, help them, I guess, see a way of paying, paying it forward, you know. Anyway, after the show aired, there have been um, calls have been made to them and they've picked up and they're, they're now going to be doing a bunch of things which are about exactly doing what they had hoped, which is, you know, um, opening up the property to certain groups and charities and so on uh, to pay it forward a bit and make the property in a small way available to a, a larger audience. So I think... If I think about the show and, the, and the, the impact of the show or the effect of the show, I think about examples like that and I feel like, great, you know, that's a win. That's fantastic. Name one thing that you would say is perfect or designed perfectly. I mean, you can go all, all through history if you like. And why would you say that? One thing which is designed. Hopefully a building does not have to be, can be, you know, a... Yeah, you know, I, I went straight to a Noguchi sculpture, actually, in my mind. That's where I went. And I thought, oh, you know, there are some of those, that kind of period where there's a certain heroism to it all, but there's an abstraction and a mystery in a Noguchi object often, especially the bigger things that he would make. And I feel like those kinds of things touch on an idea of the sublime and that idea that, you know, there is a world that is bigger than me, that is bigger than us, and we are a part of something. You could call it spiritualism. You could call it something else. Uh, like there's a visceral reaction often to, you know, certain objects and certain spaces. Um, and I, so I think of that kind of thing as, as, as close as I can think of to perfection in a designed object or a designed thing made or a created thing yeah I, I didn't go down the utilitarian route like the best coffee pot or something i think there's there's a definitely there's a beauty in function and utility but i think those things that can open up your world to something beyond your your mortal coil if i can put it that way and i'm not trying to define what that is um, landscapes do this often you know that's the tradition of the sublime of course coming from the landscape um it's coming from the landscape discipline Something that touches on that. And I can think of maybe three buildings that I've had that experience in, in over, you know, well over 25 years of being involved with architecture and visiting a lot of architecture. So, you know, and uh, they are precious. So it can be done, um, but it's getting harder and harder to make those spaces. You know, the ones I'm talking about where you walk in and some people will just burst into tears or you'll just be overcome by a sense of something like, 
I can't, I can't quite believe where I am standing right now at this point in time. And this is, this is absolutely amazing. It's almost an out-of-body experience, you know. And I'm sounding very melodramatic here, but I do fully believe that there are, there are those moments and they are different spaces and places for all of us. But there are those spaces. And I think when an architect is at their very, very best, they are the outcomes uh, of, um, of that best practice. Speaking of lineage, every architect I've ever asked this question on this on this podcast has given me the exact same answer. I mean, really? Exact same answer as you did, but I mean, in terms of it's something to do with art, and it's something to do with elucidate or, or how I say drawing out a, an, an emotion. Mm. It's really interesting. I, I've yet to find an architect. Um, who, who differs from that path. Mm. I mean, I've, I've walked into um, spaces with students on study tours and um, sat down and had a look around. And I'd look around the room of maybe 20 or 30 students and there'd be three people literally wiping tears from their eyes because of the reaction to the space that they're in, whatever it is, you know, the light coming in at a certain angle or the quality of the material or the, you know, the, the, just the nature of the geometry itself. So it's, it's definitely there. You know, and we all have access to that. But I think we as architects have to work really hard to, to remember that that is one of the things that we can do that uh, a lot of other people that we need. We, I think we need that, you know, as human beings in the world. Anthony Burke, in your next series, if I don't see your contestants bursting out in tears when they finish their project, I'll be, I'll be very disappointed. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, thank you. <laughs> very much for, for your time um, and your, your wonderful, wonderful ideas and, and, and your, your humour and your great answers. Thank you very much, Professor Anthony Burke. Franco, it's been a pleasure. That was Professor Anthony Burke, host of Restoration Australia. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.